But I, I'm glad to see you tonight, and I appreciate always getting to be here in this church with uh, you dear people and with one of my very dearest friends on the face of this earth, your pastor. I admire him more every day and every time I'm with him. I thank God for the stalwart stand that he takes for the Word of God, uncompromising, willing to stand at all costs for the faith once delivered unto the saints. God give us 10 million more in this country who will stand firm upon the Word of God. Somebody said something, and I don't know, tonight it reminded me of a church I was in in Tennessee, and the church had had a great deal of problems, and somebody said, we're going down the drain. And I said, that's utterly impossible. The devil has never made a big enough drain to swallow the church that God establishes. And I believe that with all of my heart. Indeed, any church that advances for God and wins people for Christ is going to be under satanic-inspired attack and opposition. Now, if you're a young Christian, that may come as a shock to you. But I'm going to tell you, you have marched this way for days and years. Uh, the devil's attacks are nothing new. But I will tell you this one bright side of all of Satan's assaults, the walls that he builds of opposition, and that is every wall of Jericho is but an opportunity for God to display his power and to show his hand. And I tell you, I believe in all of heaven, there is a smile upon the face of every angel of God when, he see, when they see the Lord's people under severe oppression and attack. I believe that smile is there because they're saying, I know God will reveal himself and display his power. And how glad I am that we have a Savior and a God who has established the church, brother. And I'm going to tell you all the guns, uh, all of the uh, hand grenades, uh, all of the tanks, all of the planes uh, that the devil can muster up are not enough to destroy nor defeat the cause of Jesus Christ. Alan Redpath, whom I do not necessarily agree with everything that he says. In fact, I don't know many men. I do agree with everything they say. Uh, but anyway, uh, Alan Redpath said something once that is such a blessing to my heart. And he declared, there is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. Opportunities arise out of opposition and how well the Word of God bears that out. David would have never known the power of God in delivering Israel had there been no Goliath. Joshua and Israel would have never known the great display of the power of God if there had been no walls around Jericho. The thing God would teach us as his people and as his church to do under any circumstance, fair weather, cloudy weather, opposition or none, is to be faithful to the calling God has given us and to go straight ahead toward the goal that is set before us. 
Getting out the gospel, witnessing, winning, and urging men to come to the Savior. That's what we're called to do, and that's what we need to get on with. Amen. A fellow who plays football, if you never played, I'll guarantee you one thing. You'll never get the ball under the goal post if you listen to the crowd in the grandstand. You ever noticed how many, how many wonderful quarterbacks and football players there are on the sidelines? You ever notice that? Boy, if, if you could ever one time get some of those grandstand quarterbacks on the field, why, there'd never be a game your team would lose. But strangely enough, if they were good enough, they'd be out there doing the job. And it takes men who are willing to do the job and not sit back, pardon me, and run their jaw and flap their lip. That crowd doesn't get anything done for Jesus Christ. Might as well grunt or say amen. All right. And that's the truth. So let's keep our eye on the goal and let the devil shoot his darts and let him create all kind of racket about your efforts to win men to Christ and just uh, snub your nose bud and keep going. Don't let anything get you out of your hiding place that the Lord's given you in Christ. Back in the First World War, a group of soldiers were in, uh, in hiding beside a little uh, roadway running through a forest. And uh, they were there. Here came German tanks and German tanks on German tanks. And finally, one old rough, weather-beaten sergeant said, I've had enough of this. And they said, what, uh, his men said to him, what are you going to do? Well, he said, I'm going to shoot him. And they looked at him and said, with what, pray tell? Well, he said, I'm going to shoot him with my rifle. And the guys began to laugh and said, shoot a tank with your rifle? What on earth? How much good will that do? He said, you just wait till one of them stops and I'll show you. And sure enough, one of them stopped and he said, open fire. And boy, they started shooting at the top top of that old metal tank and uh, and uh, some of them still with question marks why their sergeant have them shoot at that little tank with nothing but rifle bullets and finally after they stopped a German soldier raised the, t- the hatch of that turret and stuck his head out shaking it like that with all the racket he'd been hearing ping ping wang wang and when he stuck it out down he went And another one stuck his head out to get a little breath of air, and down he went. The story, the truth behind what I'm trying to tell you is this. Don't let the devil's little pings and whangs get you to stick your head out of the hiding place and keep you from traveling on for Jesus. If you do, he'll knock you flat on your back. So just keep on and do what God's told you to do. Don't worry about critics. You'll never satisfy that bunch. A critic like a woman. Uh, starts like a woman. They're <laughs> never satisfied. <laughs> I was wanting to goodness. Don't tell my wife I said that, will you? And <laughs> you can just do all you want to, and you'll never please them. That's right. You can just, if they don't like your hair parted on one side, you can change it, nail gripe about it. And uh, if you put your glasses on wrong, or if you got a wrong turn on one side of your mouth, change it and all the trouble you've gone to, and they'll gripe and growl about that. I've learned a long time ago and experienced this in my life that if I stopped to attend to my critics, do you know what? I'd never get a sermon preached. I'd never get a soul to Jesus. I'd never get the job done for the Son of God. 
Anytime you move, you're going to create friction. Did you know that? You can't move your hand. You can't move through the air, the water, without creating friction. And when you move through this hostile world of carnal Christians and unbelieving men and women, listen, you're going to create some stir. And any time you get to moving, old Slewfoot don't like that. And he's going to howl and complain and bark and pinch everybody he can and get them uncomfortable. But just stay up the job. Just stay up the post of duty and keep on keeping on. And you must realize this, that's the, that's the very aim and the purpose behind all the devil does in your life as a Christian family, as a Bible-believing church, or as a born-again believer. He's trying to detour you from your purpose. And if he can get you to stop long enough to into that crowd, then uh, you've, you've already lost several days, maybe weeks, maybe months in doing what God told you to do. I never will forget when Dr. Jack Hiles was voted out of the association, uh, thank God for that, out in Texas. Uh, and uh, I heard his uh, sermon right after that. And his sermon was entitled, What Are We Going to Do Now? What are we going to do now? And he said somebody came and said that to him. Preacher, what on earth are we going to do now? They voted us out. We've got opposition. What are we going to do now? And Dr. Hiles said the same thing we've always done. We're going to the pool halls and pass out tracks. We're going behind every stump and bush we can and give the gospel to men and women just like we've been doing. We're going to pray like we've been doing. We're going to sing like we've been singing. We're going to preach like we've been preaching. We're going to go to church like we've been going to church. And that's the secret of success, my friend. Just get on with the job and God will honor you and God will be glorified and sinners will be brought to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. I like that preaching, don't you? I sure do, and I didn't even plan that. All right, uh, let me get a little closer home now. Oh, you've done a good job this week. My, how many 89 visitors? Y'all beat anything I've ever seen in my life. Just work and get them out here. It's just thrilling. I'm glad to be a part of this. If I lived here, I'd move my letter if y'all didn't have me. Uh, but uh, I like this, and I like the spirit of this great church. And uh, with a spirit like that, listen, the great horizon of victory is in front of you. You hadn't seen anything yet. That's a good sermon. You ought to preach on that. You hadn't seen anything yet. And uh, I believe, brother, uh, that God's got it for you. And uh, it's ours for the taking and ours for the claiming. These wonderful victories in Christ. Say, I, I thought just now of a little story I read a long, long time ago in The Progressive Farmer. Any of y'all read The Progressive Farmer? Listen, that's the greatest magazine ever printed besides Sears Roebuck. And uh, I like The Progressive Farmer. And I saw it in a little story one time. A Sunday school teacher had asked all of the little students in the class to bring something as an object lesson. And so they came in next Sunday. Everybody had something down in his coat pocket and hid uh, away. And the teacher said, all right, it's time for your object lesson. One little boy jumped up and he pulled out a flashlight and turned it on. And the teacher said, what does that mean, son? Well, he said, that means you are the light of the world. 
Oh, she said, that's tremendous. That's wonderful. You've really gotten the point. And a little girl stood up and she pulled out of her little uh, dress, uh, out of her little dress pocket, a little salt shaker and she held that up. And the teacher said, what's that stand for, honey? And she said, you're the salt of the earth. Boy, she said, that's wonderful. Directly a little old boy in a little pair of blue faded overalls got up, rammed his hand down in his pocket up to his elbow and pulled out a little Danny hen egg about that big and stood there just for a moment. The teacher said, well, what does that stand for in the Bible? And he said, she hath done what she could. Well, <laughs> I think that's what you ought to do. I really do. You ought to do what you can. Now, you may not be as much as somebody else, but do what you can. And God will honor you for it, I believe with my heart. Amen. All right. If you have your Bible tonight, I want you to turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. And I want to read tonight, beginning at verse 20, and we'll read down through verse number 25. The book of Jude, verse number 20, through verse number 25. Now, let me bring you up to date just before we read these remaining verses of this little, God, this little book of Jude. You'll recall that Jude writes now to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who are sanctified, those who are preserved, are kept, are sealed in Jesus Christ. And then he writes saying in verse number 3, Beloved, when I gave all dibs right unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. And may I remind you the word contend in verse 3 means not necessarily be contentious. The world may accuse you of that if you do what this word basically means. But rather the word contend means to stand at all cost at whatever price you stand for the faith. And the literal text of the Greek language says I stand for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. Now Jude was so very painfully aware that though he wanted to write and rejoice in the common salvation that was his and theirs, yet he said it's necessary that I write to you about those who have departed from the faith. They're not standing for the faith. These who have been professed followers of God, but in their heart have never in truth been really born of the Spirit of God. They have departed from the faith. And I think I said this the other night. When you find the term the faith in the Bible, it is a reference to the body of Christian doctrine. It is a reference to the foundations of the Christian faith. The verbal inspiration of the Bible. The infallibility of the Word of God. The virgin birth of Christ. The bodily resurrection from the tomb. His blood atonement. These cardinal fundamental things of the Word of God. And so Jude said, there are some who have at one time claimed to believe this, but now they have departed from it. Again, Jesus said, or was it, was it John who said, if they had been with us, they would not have gone out from us. But in that they have gone out from us, we know that they are not with us and not of us. And so there have been those who claim to believe the faith, but they have departed from it. And we live in that age that we often refer to as the apostasy. The departure from, the falling away from the old truths that 
that are revealed in the Word of God. That's a very severe time. And it's a time when you have to be very watchful over your own life, lest you, may I say it as it's been said before, lest you get the devil in you trying to get him out of everybody else. And that's an easy thing to do. And so Jude recognized it. And here in the last part of this book, beginning at verse 20, Jude is going to tell us, at least seven things that we ought to be doing in view of the fact that men are departing from the faith. Now watch what he says, verse 20. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. First thing you ought to be doing, Jude said, is building building up yourselves on your most holy faith. In other words, firm up the foundation. Reaffirm your own belief in the fundamentals of the Word of God. Know why you believe these things from the Scripture. Gary Player, a very outstanding professional golfer, says that once every year he returns to his original coach who taught him the basics of a game of golf and he goes back and lets that coach go through go with him again through all of the routines, his swing, his stance and so forth of the game of golf. Now here's the man that feels necessary and the importance of the reaffirming of the fundamentals in such a game as golf. If it, this fellow feels it's important, oh, how much more important it is that we as God's people firm up the foundation. When men are departing from the faith, denying the word of God, we need to know why we believe what we profess to believe as born again children of God. All right, notice should he be building, but Jude says praying in the Holy Ghost. You ought to not only be building, but praying. How easy it is to get one side outweighing the other. It's necessary to build, but it's necessary to pray. Now, the term praying in the Holy Ghost does not mean what some are telling you it means today. And that is that you get in prayer and all of a sudden you begin to speak some kind of Yiddish or gibberish or jabberish and uh, you don't understand what you're saying and neither does anybody else. I've never understood that. I wonder why God couldn't understand plain old English. God doesn't have any problem doing that. And people talk, oh, some fellas said the other day I was praying and all of a sudden I began speaking a heavenly language. Whoever heard of folks in the heaven talking like that? The truth is, that's just something the devil's hatched up, I'll guarantee you, and horn-swoggled and deceived many a man and woman of this country. A fellow came to me the other day and he said, Hey, do you speak in tongues? I said, Boy, I speak in a tongue that Jesus never spoke in. I speak in a tongue that Paul never spoke in. And his eyes were getting bigger for the minute. And he said, Sure enough, how long you been doing this? I said, since I learned to talk. What's that he said? I said, plain old redneck Georgia English. Jesus never spoke in that. Paul never spoke in that. And let me tell you something. Many a man and woman will have some kind of strange experience. And I'm not denying that person didn't have the experience. 
But just because you have an experience doesn't mean that's according to the word of God. You mark that down. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. But the truth is, many a man judges the Bible, interprets the Bible on the basis of experience, and that's just vice versa from what you're taught in the book. You ought to judge your experiences on the basis of what the word of God says. Devil can give you an experience. I guarantee you that. You eat as much chicken as I've eaten since I've been here. That's an experience. I don't know if it's biblical or not, but I'll guarantee you it's an experience. The truth is, men and women judge that Christian life from experiences, not from the simple truth of the Word of God. Now, I didn't mean to get on all that and stay there that long. I've made some of you mad already, so I'll just move on. I've accomplished my purpose. All right, not only building and praying, but he said, look, verse 21, keeping, keep yourselves uh, in the love of God. We say, what's wrong? You're afraid you're going to get outside of the love of God and you're going to get to a place where God doesn't love you anymore? Oh, no. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. But Jesus loves me when I'm bad. He loves me regardless. What are you talking about? Is it possible to get out of the sphere of the love of God? No. But he's saying, stay out from behind the shadows. Don't get behind something and hide yourself in some pent-up emotion or unforgiving spirit or a bitterness of heart. Don't hide yourself from the love of God. Be careful that you don't grow bitter in your heart as to the things that happen to you in life lest you get out of the sunlight and the sun rays of the love of God. May I tell you again, it's not what happens to you as a Christian that makes you or breaks you. But it's how you react to what's happened to you in life that'll make all the difference in your life. Somebody said the difference between a better man and a bitter man is one little letter, and that letter's I. That makes the difference between better and bitter. And many of the experiences in life we can hide behind and grow bitter and sour and resentful and vengeful, and we'll get out of the sunlight of the love of God. Oh, he said, be careful in this day when you're standing firm that you keep yourself in the love of God. And then... Verse 21 also says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and always looking for his coming. Verse 22 says, having compassion, making a difference. And I'll guarantee you that'll make a difference. Somebody said, if you'll love your enemies, you won't have to bury any of them. For when you bury them, they won't Even the garments spotted by the flesh. Yes, there's a place for hatred in your life as a Christian. Not hatred of men, but hatred of sin. Anger and hostility toward unrighteousness. And you're not worth the salt in your bread as a Christian unless you've learned to despise and hate evil. Unless your blood boils when men sin against God and holy things are trampled on their feet, you'll not amount to much for God. There needs to be some temper, spiritual temper, in the life of the child of God. Now then I want us to look at one phrase tonight, and that's what I want us to dwell on. Verse number 23. And Jude said, in this time of apostasy, you ought to be pulling men out of the fire. I don't know anything that is more alarming, that creates more anxiety of mind, that, cre that stirs men to greater action than the sudden outbreak of a fire. 
When in the presence of a fire, have you ever noticed and known of men to do almost superhuman things that literally under a normal set of circumstance they would never be able to do? I'll never forget when I was a boy going to school up in the mountains. One day our schoolhouse caught on fire. I thought, Lord, you have answered my prayer. You have just heard me today. Now, the schoolhouse caught on fire. They got all of us children out in the fifth grade, and out we were, just a laughing and a having a big time as a big day. The school caught on fire. But the grown folks who understood all of the dangers and the loss of property, they were certainly, dis- they were certainly disturbed. I saw one man run into that burning building, and when he came out, he had a piano bigger than this one up on his back, and running out of that burning building. When he set it down, I saw him turn around to some of his buddies and he said, well, I never dreamed I could have done such a thing as that. Ordinarily said it took three or four men to pick that piano up. And here, look, dear, would you believe it? I've carried that thing out on my own strength. What happened? This fella had somehow an additional strength to perform in the presence of danger. A trucker was driving his rig out through the state of Texas. He fell asleep at the wheel after many hours of driving and pulling behind him was a, one of those tankers full of petroleum and gasoline, explosive, fi- flammable materials. The man's truck craned off the highway and turned upside down and all the tumbling and rolling over. The man was pinned in under the steering wheel with that steel dash pushed in against him. The motor began to flame up. And there's the man began to scream and cry for somebody help him. Somebody save me. A motorist came by and saw what was happening. Heard the screams of the man. The motorist was but a small kind of fella. But he ran down the bank and up to the scene where the trucker was screaming for his life. And he crawled in the cab window and got his knees and his feet up against that steel dash to the degree that with a burst of strength, that little man moved the dash enough. For the trucker to free himself from that dangerous position. Ordinarily the man said, I could have never dreamed of doing such a thing. But what made the difference? He had the presence of danger. He saw what he is up against. Here was the man's life at stake. And listen, he could do far more. Listen folks, sometimes we think we've done all we can do. We think we have prayed all we can pray. We've gone all we can go. We've knocked on doors as long as we can. We've given of ourselves. We've given of our money. We think we've given all we can. But once a glimpse of the despair and the danger of the soul of man, and I'll tell you, you'll find that you can do almost unbelievable things to get men and women to Jesus Christ. It is then this presence of danger that produces within men the ability to perform what otherwise would be the impossible. Now, fire is like sin. And it reveals to us a great deal about sin. And I want you to see it in just a passing glimpse. The nature of sin is that seen in the nature of fire. Fire, like fire, the nature of sin is delightful and attractive, but it is destructive. What's more pleasant to come in on a cold winter's evening, light a fire in the fireplace? Daddy says, far place. I don't know where he gets far, but he likes far in the far place. 
sits down there, turns all the lights out, turns the kerosene lamp on, and sits there, and my, what a, what a relaxation that is to me, just go to his house and sit down. And that fire and the flames are dancing and licking up through the chimney. Quietness all around, only the crackling of that fire. That's a relaxing kind of scene. But do you realize that that same fire that is so delightful is also very destructive? And yet men and women do not recognize in that very fact the very picture of sin. For by nature man is delighted at sin. By his very nature he is attracted to sin like a hog is attracted to slop. His nature pulls him toward it. It appeals to him. It attracts the eye. It gets his attention. Say, back in Genesis 3 and verse 6, you remember the Bible said, when Eve looked upon that tree that was forbidden by the Lord for her to partake, she saw that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. And she took of it and gave to her husband and he did eat. And they both died a spiritual death and were abandoned and separated from God. Listen, sin is so pleasant to the eye, but so destructive. I was once in Reno, Nevada. I walked past one of the big casinos, gambling joints. And when you walked into that place, and I, along with a couple other preachers, I wasn't out there for business, I was observing. And I walked in, and the carpet was, brother, you just mire up in about ankle deep. Beautiful, sparkling chandeliers. The atmosphere was one of gaiety. Everybody seemed to be well controlled. I looked for drunks. Come to find out, you couldn't find any in there misbehaving. And I said to the fellow who was with me, I said, we're all the drunks around here, gambling and drinking goes together. Well, he said, if you'll go out the back door, you'll find them laying in the alley. He said, see that big old fellow looks like a gorilla right over there? He's a bouncer, he said. When a man gets acting up and he's hurting the establishment and their image that they try to portray around here is a nice, decent place, he's bounced out on his ear. I said, I understand. The truth is, that's bad advertisement for the devil's business. And so I walked in there and looked around. Everybody seemed to be behaving themselves. And the first impression that would come to the natural mind is, what is wrong with this? Delightful and appealing, but say, walk down the street just a pace or so. Pass one of those pawn shops. And you'll find that men have pawned, as it were, their very soul to get another dollar to stick in the one-armed bandit or play at the dice table or some other game of gambling and chance. And in those windows, funny looking sight, false teeth, glass eyes looking up at you, gold earrings, guitars, knives, everything imaginable. And the preacher with me said, right here is where most of the folks wind up who gamble in that casino. They get their money lifted off of them and they come down with the gambling fever and they give everything they've got to try to beat the odds. Oh, it looks delightful. But it's very devastating and destructive. Sin looks appealing to the eye of man. I said the other day, the devil paints one side of the board for, for drinking, but he never lets you see the other side. Here's a beautiful young girl, rosy cheeks, sparkling eyes, flowing hair, 
beautiful in every, in every sense of the word. There held in her hand is a sparkling goblet. Inside is the glittering uh, booze that she is about to drink and an advertisement for real living. But they never show on the other side the same girl, the wrinkled and haggard old hag, selling the precious virtue of life. Now with no respect for herself nor anyone else. Ready to blow her brains out. They don't show her but in that deathbed as she's taken an overdose of pills. They don't show her as she's blown her brains out or hung herself. Ah, oh, sin looks delightful to the natural eye. But it's very deadly and very destructive. So is fire. It is then delightful but destructive. And then second, let me say this about it. Like fire, like fire, it begins a tiny spark and then it grows to uncontrollable proportion. James said, like, said it like this, chapter 3 of James, verse 5. Behold, how great a matter, a little fire kindleth, but a little tiny match, a spark, and then comes the flame from the match. And then the building comes to a flame. The child is played with the match. Dropped it in the trash can. From the trash fire comes the curtains. And then the house is consumed in the flame of that fire. Oh, listen. It may start a tiny thing in your life, but it'll overpower you and overwhelm you. Foolish is the man or woman or young person who thinks he can toy and play with a little sin in his life and it not overcome him. Back yonder in the Old Testament is a man by the name of Saul. Have you seen him? You have stood in awe and admiration of his person. Head and shoulders above all his fellows in Israel. A handsome man. Dark olive complexion. Perhaps dark flowing black hair. Eyes that were penetrating. A handsome sort of man. A jaw that was set that showed determination. And everybody flocked to Saul. He was a mighty king in Israel. But he had a weakness. And he had a sin that he wouldn't let God deal with in his life. One day he went out under the command and order of God to destroy the Amalekites. Take every one of them, God's servant said. Destroy both man and woman, uh, suckling and, and, and babe, camel and ass, oxen, sheep. Do away with them. They have been the enemy of Israel. They are my enemy. Destroy them. And Saul went out fully determined to do what he said. But instead he spared the best of the sheep and the best of the cattle and even old Agag himself. He spared him in his life. What could this hurt? Surely people in Israel will be pleased when they're bringing back these jewels and this very personable man, King Agag. No one would be opposed to that. I've done everything else. And besides, he's such a likable individual. He keeps him and now God's servant comes, discovers his sin and pronounces the judgment upon Saul and his house and his king and his leadership. Saul for many years after began to go down and down and down. And one day he's in the final battle of his life. He wars and the battle goes against him as it has been for a while. And now he runs in terror and fear. And rather than to be taken captive by his enemies, 
The Bible said that he falls on his own sword, deliberately tries to commit suicide. And falling on his sword, yet it does not kill him immediately. Lying in his own blood, writhing in his own agony and pain of body, he hears the footsteps of an approaching person. He looks to him and calls to him, seeing that he is a soldier, and says to him, Soldier, I want you to finish me off. Take my life. I do not want to fall in the hands of the enemy. By the way, Saul said, Who art thou? And listen to these haunting, terrifying words. I am an Amalekite. An Amalekite? Saul, that's the crowd God told you to get rid of. That's the thing God told you to banish and abolish. But you didn't do it. And now it's overwhelmed you. And now it's the end of your life. That Amalekite got the last stroke in on the mighty man Saul. Don't you kid yourself. You toy with sin and pet it. And it'll overwhelm you. It'll destroy you. So Saul found it in his life. It begins a tiny spark and grows to uncontrollable proportions. Sometimes men think, well... Preacher, I've never robbed a bank, killed anybody. I'm not a thief, a thug, a reprobate, renegade. I'm not that. Perhaps, sure, I ought to trust Jesus. And I felt like I ought to go forward and ask Christ to be my Savior. But all I've done is just refuse Jesus. All I've done is refuse Jesus. A small sin, you think. But the sin alone that God said will condemn you to eternal hell. The sin that will damn you forever in the pits of torment. The truth is, it is a little sin to you, but it will overpower you, your unbelief. Nobody can see it in your heart. Nobody can look down there but God. And that moment of unbelief and rejecting Christ and refusing to come to Him can overwhelm you. Several years ago, a well-known lady, and I, I'm not going to call her name, I could... But I don't think it'll serve any purpose here in that it is in the state of Georgia where this happened. This particular lady was the owner of an old historic manor in the state of Georgia. She had heard by some means, she had heard me preach. And one day, this dear lady called me and said, Preacher, I'm Mrs. So-and-so. Would you please come to my home, to the old manor, and I'd like to talk with you. I have something I want to ask you. And I said, Certainly. I hung up the phone, rather puzzled or wonder, and wondering why this very important woman would ask me to come to her home. I drove over to the old manor, a stately-looking place where stagecoaches had stopped in years past, and I visioned those scenes while children played in the yard, and a tired mother and daddy on a long trip and an old rough riding stagecoach got out for a drink of water and for a pause on their long journey. I walked inside and this dear lady met me, a woman in her late 80s, middle 80s I believe then. I walked in and she said, have a seat young man and I sat down in an old antique rocker. The thing squeaked as you rocked back and forth. And I sat down and the dear old lady pulled another chair up close to me. And I began to compliment her on the beautiful manner and all the old antique furniture. I was amazed by it. And then it wasn't very few minutes until she said, Young man, do you know why I've asked you to come here this afternoon? And I said, No, I do not. 
She said, I've heard you preach and I believe you'll tell me the truth. I believe you can explain something to me. And I said, if I can, I will. She said, young man, would you please tell me how I can become a Christian? How can I be saved? To put it in your words, she said. Can you tell me? And I said, yes, I can tell you. A lot of things I can't tell you, but I can tell you that. I took the Bible out of my pocket and began to explain to her in the simplest language I knew how the simple plan of God's salvation. I showed the scripture said all of sin and come short of the glory of God. I showed her that the wages of our sin is death, but that Christ came and died for us. We don't have to die. We can live eternally if we'll take him as the very substitute, the one who died for us. And as I talked on and on for about an hour and 45 minutes, a dear old woman would shake her head and say, I, I know what you're saying up here. I understand your words, but somehow I'm not able to understand down here what you're telling me. And then she wept for a moment and said, Years ago, I understood it down here. When I was a young girl, 16 years of age, the Baptists were having a camp meeting over here in a brush arbor. I went over with some of my friends out of curiosity. That night, I'd never heard a man preach like that old-time preacher preach. And something burned in my heart. And my friends, my pals would, would go down and they'd bow down on their knees and they seemed to have such joy in their hearts. And the preacher would urge them to come and, and be saved. To come and repent of your sins, he would say. And oh, she said, the urge was so strong in me to go down to that altar. But I resisted that night and felt rather proud of myself as I went home that he had not roped me into coming to an altar. But the next night, she said, I went back. And that night, though the urge was there, it didn't seem to be quite as strong. And now she said, it's been many, many years. And all she said, if one more time I could have that understanding down in here. She said, I'm not going to live long, I guess. But all that I could understand, that I could be saved. And I again said, but you can be. I left with a woman shaking her head. In her heart, broken, but for some reason not able to grasp the simplicity of receiving Christ by faith as, a, as your Savior. You say, Brother Wald, what are you saying? Are you trying to tell us that God can't save a person like that? No, I'm not telling you that. But I am telling you that a man or a woman can say no to Jesus Christ so long that his heart becomes like the calloused hands of a farmer who takes the stalks of the plow, the plow handles, and his hands go tender for a while. After constant use, they become hard. And not even a pin will make him flinch when you stick him in those calloused hands. The heart begins with what it terms a simple little sin of unbelief. And then it overpowers and crushes and calluses the heart. And many a man has died and went to hell as a result. 
One other thing I tell you tonight. Time will not permit me to say all I'd like to say. But like fire sends natures to mar and to destroy everything it touches. See that young, beautiful girl? She kisses her mother and dad goodbye one day and walks out the house feeling a new air of freedom. She goes to the city life and there falls in with the wrong crowd. She's a prodigal daughter. She lives it up in wild parties and sensual thrills. She follows the crowd with their beer drinking, with their drugs. She follows them wherever they go. But unknowing to her, like some creeping monster, that sin begins to take its toll and mar and destroy and soil her very life. Years pass, and a weeping mother and dad comes to the window at eventide to look out to see if their child's coming home. And one day as they sit together with thoughts of heartbreak, and a daughter whom they haven't heard from for years. A footsteps heard on the porch. A dad rises to see who it is and looks in utter astonishment. And the mother says, who is it? And the dad says, it's our daughter, honey. I think it's our daughter. She's come home. And when the door is opened, the eyes that sparkled with innocence of youth, a face that shone the purity of life and the protection of a godly mother and father. The dark shadows of sin are painted across her face. The empty loneliness of heart expresses itself through her eyes. And a broken voice says, Hello, Mom. Hello, Dad. What a heartbreak to a mother and father to see a daughter or a son whose life has been marred and scarred and destroyed by sin. But our Heavenly Father looks down tonight on souls in this very building and he sees the ugly ruin that sin's left in your life. He sees the scars that are there and yet in spite of it, he'll welcome you home tonight. Though sin may have marred and scarred and almost destroyed your life, Jesus is willing to receive you and kiss away the wounds of sin and smile at your soul as he says your sins are forgiven. Fire like sin. No wonder Jude said, pulling them out of the fire. Men are caught in that fire. That condemnation of sin. It'll do no good to get on the elevator and go to the highest story of morality. The fire's already broke out in that condemned place. Go to the penthouse. Get away from the crackling of the fire. The smell of the smoke. But are you safe? Oh no. Get on the religious elevator. Join the church. Go up in the ranks of religion. But unless you come to Jesus Christ, you're still in the state of condemnation. There's only one place of refuge for you, and that's in Christ. He alone can save and give you safety from the blazing fire. A fire broke out in an insane asylum in London, England, back in the year 1903. January the 27th, a terrible disaster. 
300 patients inside, 50 of them perished, died, burned to death in the fire. 250 of them were rescued. But those who were reviewed who had a part in the rescue revealed some interesting things about that event. One rescuer said, I went into a ward and said to those patients, this place is a fire. Please come with me. Let me take you to safety. And he said they all broke into a silly, fiendish laughter. They thought I came with some joke. They laughed at the mention of fire. Think again what the Word of God said, fools. Make a mock of sin. You may laugh at the thick-tongued, blurry-eyed addicts of a drunkard, but God never even smiles at the drunk. For he said no drunkard shall enter that place, but will have his place in the lake of fire. We may laugh at the suggestive immorality by the modern comedian on television or radio, but let me tell you something, nobody in heaven laughs at even the suggestion of immorality. For God said the immoral, the sinful, the immoral shall not be there, but have their part in the lake of fire. You say, preacher, you tell me we can't be saved. We've ever done these things. No, I'm telling you, if you continue on without coming to Christ and receiving him and knowing his forgiveness, there's no place in heaven for you. For men get to heaven only by one way, and that way Jesus said, I am and no man comes unto the Father but by me. Others simply, they said, hid under the beds. They pulled the pillows over their heads and said, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to listen to that. And men with a score do that in our world. They want to go hear a preacher spray a little religious toilet water in the evening in Paris on them. They want to smell a little better. They want to go away with goosebumps running up and down their spines because of the poetic words of the preacher. They want to go with a great positive sense of worthiness. And the preacher accommodates by patting sinful men on the back and saying, you're all right, just go on through life. Just come to church occasionally. But listen, God said with your sin you'll die forever and perish Listen, he's your friend, and because he's your friend, he'll tell you the truth about your condition. And he tells you that you may do something about it, and he offers the remedy in himself. He has the cure through his blessed son. Hide from it if you will, but the reality of the danger is still there. I tell this story, and I've got to close. You've been so patient. My dear friend, Johnny Mize, who lives in Demarest, Georgia now, my home. John Myers for years was known as the biggest man in professional baseball. Physically, he's a giant. He used to play the New York Yankees, New York Giants. Was a smashing hit in the, in the last World Series that he played in. John Myers and his wife lived in the state of Florida. One day his wife came in tired and weary from, an, from a day's uh, work and running here and there and she came in tired and stretched out on the sofa and lighted a cigarette and took a few drags off of that cancer stick and dropped off to sleep and the cigarette fell down between the cushions. She laid down in a sense of perfect comfort and ease. No thought of danger. And while she slept, the smoldering fumes began to come up and she inhaled them and undoubtedly they said in the autopsy died even before the fire got to her. 
But John's wife died in that fire. She had no sense of danger. But it was there nonetheless. The people who lived in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Japan, when the atomic bomb was first dropped upon any city or upon any people, they went about that day before the bomb was dropped with no doubt perfect feelings of safety. Certainly no thought of such devastation as would come. But yonder in the Pentagon, some leaders of our nation, including the then President Harry Truman, sat down in secret chambers. And they were to determine the spot where that bomb, that hell bomb, would be dropped. They marked around with a little red circle the cities of Hiroshima and put a red X mark. People in Hiroshima felt nothing. They were still living and walking. No thought of such terrible death, such fiery destruction. But they were as good as dead. And when the mighty fortress put that death bomb in its bosom and flew out over the waters and headed toward its target, death was hanging over the inhabitants of that city. They had no feeling of that. They had no sense of danger, no threat to their lives of that nature. But they were destined for death. And finally, when that giant bird opened her Bombay doors and dropped that death weapon, destruction came so swiftly and sure. Somebody you in this building walks through life and you say, Oh, I feel like I'm all right. You better have something better than feelings, my friend. Oh, I feel like I'll go to heaven. Let me ask you tonight, have you got any Bible reason to call yourself a Christian? Have you got any basis from the Word of God that you can say, I know if I were to die tonight, I would go to heaven. If you don't have, remember your feelings are deceptive. And like people of Japan who felt no death imminent, they were marked for it. And I give you this, John 3 and verse 36. And the word of God said, The man that believes not, the wrath of God abides, hangs over him. I pray that tonight you'll heed the word of the rescuer and come from the burning inferno of your sin and unbelief. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our heads are bowed. We reverently pause for a moment. I want you to think tonight. I want to challenge you to think. I want you to face reality. I don't want you to run from it, hide from it, excuse yourself. I want to just ask the simple question to your heart tonight. Do I really know if I were to die tonight, I'd go to heaven? Do I know that? I was a sinner. I asked Jesus Christ to save me, to become my Savior. By faith I've received it. If you don't know you've done that, oh, listen. Though you have no feeling of danger and hell and death, the danger's there, my friend. And in five minutes' time, you could be out in eternity, lost forever. But you don't have to be. You can be saved right here tonight. 
You say, how by joining this church? No, but by inviting Jesus Christ into your heart. Certainly if you're saved, I urge you to join a Bible-believing church like this or even this church. That you be faithful to God. But listen, I'm talking about asking Christ to be your Savior. And I pray you'll do it right now. Let's stand to our feet as we sing together in just a moment, just as I am without a plea. That is blood was shed for me. Before we sing it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I humbly pray tonight that thy Holy Spirit will speak to every heart in this building. They've recognized their need. The Holy Spirit's definitely spoken. Men and women and young people realize they're lost. May they come now to receive you as their Savior. You alone can do that. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Your heads are still bowed. Your eyes are closed. And while we sing the first stanza of this invitation, dear man, you, dear lady, you, young person, you, young boy or girl, if you know you've not received Christ, I want you to leave as we begin to sing. Walk right down the aisle. Preacher Bill standing right here at the front. I want you to come give him your hand and bow here and say, Preacher, the best I know how, I'm asking Jesus to be my Savior tonight. You'll do it then while we sing on the first stanza. Come quickly while we sing.